Turn with me in the Bible to Deuteronomy chapter 5. We'll begin our scripture readings there. We've already read from Exodus 20, where we have the fourth commandment given for the first time at Mount Sinai. It's a lengthy commandment, as the Lord says much, doesn't he? But you remember that the reason attached to the fourth commandment in Exodus chapter 20 is God's pattern that he made the world in six days and rested the seventh day and blessed it. Excuse me. In Deuteronomy 5, the reason attached to the commandment has to do not with creation, but with redemption. And so we're at Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. God's holy word. Deuteronomy 5, verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall, not, you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter, nor your male servant nor your female servant, nor your ox nor your donkey nor any of your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. And remember that you are a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Then if you turn to the prophets to Isaiah chapter 58 to read a couple verses there. Isaiah chapter 58 reading verses 13 and 14, the last two verses of Isaiah 58, where God announces to his people at verse 13, If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and shall honor him not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words, Then you shall delight yourself in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. And finally to the Gospels, to Mark chapter 2, where Christ declares himself the Lord of the Sabbath. Mark chapter 2, we'll read verses 23 through the end of the chapter. Though chapter 3 goes on, as Christ reveals himself, Lord of the Sabbath, by healing a man with a withered hand on the Sabbath day. But in Mark 2, verse 23, we read, Now it happened that he went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? But he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry, he and those with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests, and also gave some to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. That's where we end the reading of Scripture. If you take out the Smaller Forms and Prayers book and turn in the Heidelberg Catechism to Lord's Day 38, you'll find that on page 246. 
page 246 in the Forms and Prayers book. We're at Lord's Day 38, since these questions and answers of the Catechism have been divided up according to 52 Lord's Days, that in the course of a year or so, they might be read or preached. Lord's Day 38 on page 246, question 103 says, What is God's will for you in the fourth commandment? Remember the Sabbath day. The answer, first, that the gospel ministry and schools for be maintained, and that especially on the festive day of rest, I diligently attend the assembly of God's people to learn what God's word teaches, to participate in the sacraments, to pray to the Lord publicly, and to bring Christian offerings for the poor. Second, that every day of my life I rest from my evil ways, let the Lord work in me through his spirit, and so begin in this life the eternal Sabbath. Should we ask for God's help and his blessing upon the word? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we do bow our heads as we come humbly to ask that you would Cause your word to be preached correctly, and that you would give us the hearts to receive it. We acknowledge that we know you in no other way, but through the word of God, Christ, the incarnate word, and Christ speaking to us in the inscripturated word by his spirit. And so we pray that you would guide our time in your word, and that you'd visit us, that you would speak into our hearts and lives that you'd uncover our sin, that you would reveal to us the glory of our Savior, that you would renew us by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. People of God, let me remind you at the outset here that we're studying the law of God. Not, Not ten suggestions, but ten commandments. The law of God, the law of the great King who descended upon Mount Sinai and who who spoke his will for the lives of his people. And God spoke that word in the context of the covenant. He brought them out of Egypt, brought them to Mount Sinai. He came near to his people and in that context spoke his word, declaring his will for them. And so we, we hear the word of God as the rule of gratitude, how we are to live to please God. It would not be right to study any of the commandments as if they're a bunch of checks or boxes that we might check off. And if we keep all these things, then we might acquire the favor of God. The law is not given as a tool by which we can, can earn or merit or pull down God's acceptance or his favor. But the law is given to a people favored by God. He, in love and mercy visited a sinful people in Egypt and brought them out and made them his own in covenant with them. And in the context of saying, I'm the Lord your God who's delivered you, he announced his will for their lives. And so as we study the law of God, our our calling is to come to that law saying, Father, we are your children. We want to please you. Show us how we may glorify you. Show us how we may please you. And it's with that understanding then, that it's not peculiar to us to to realize that the more we walk in God's law, the more we find our joy in God. You see, we're like little children who say, we want to be near to our father. We ask mom, where is our father? Where is dad? And she tells us where he is. He's in the garage. He's over there. He's there. And they run to the place where he is. 
We come to the word of God. We say, where are you, Father? Where do you walk? Where does the covenant Lord spend his time? And the the word of God says to us, this is your God. This is his righteousness. This is where he walks in these laws. And if you want to be near to God, then walk with him through Jesus Christ in the light of his law. I think it's important to think about that in view of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a lost jewel in our culture. But where it's recovered... Great joys and great blessings follow. Let's think about that this morning. The Lord's Day, the Sabbath that God calls us to in the fourth commandment. I'd like to consider three things this morning. First of all, the Sabbath is a gift of the Father's love. The Sabbath day is a gift of our Father's love to us. Secondly, the Sabbath is a proclamation of our Savior's accomplishment. It's a proclamation of Christ's redemption. He's come to bring us true rest. And thirdly, the Sabbath is an instrument of the Spirit's shaping. It's an instrument or tool in the hand of the Spirit who is influencing, who is shaping our lives for the Lord. Well, first of all, the Sabbath is a gift of our Father's love. We would be off to a wrong and dangerous beginning if we didn't ponder this truth, that that from the start, the Sabbath was given as God's provision for his people in all of his love and mercy and kindness. The very context, of course, of the fourth commandment when God says in that prologue, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of bondage, is already the revelation that what God is speaking to his people is spoken in love to them. In their captivity, under Pharaoh, the Israelites did not have rest. They were slaves. And God in the fourth commandment says, I brought you out to give you rest. To give you relief. To give you liberty. But more than that, God was restoring to his people the joy of imitating their maker. When in the fourth commandment in Exodus chapter 20, God gives the law, the Sabbath, and then he says, For in six days God made the heavens and the earth and all that's in them. He rested the seventh day. God is saying to his people, My work is is your pattern. What I did in making the world and then resting the seventh day is the paradigm for you, my sons and daughters, to imitate their father. So you no longer live as slaves to a tyrant, but as sons of the true king, you are invited to copy me. But here's the thing we often miss. And really, wherever the idea of Sabbath becomes to us some drudgery or some burden, then we've completely lost sight of this. That the fourth commandment not only calls us to imitate our God who worked six and the rest of the seventh, but the Sabbath itself is God's gift to us in which God is inviting us to share in his delight. Just think of what it means when that reason is attached to Exodus 20. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth the sea and all that is in them, and he rested the seventh day. And then it adds, Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. God rested, then he blessed and hallowed. What does it mean that he blessed and hallowed the Sabbath day? Well, I think to understand that you have to ask, what does it mean God rested, first of all? What does it mean that the Almighty God who's 
who's infinitely energetic, who's never depleted, he rested after working six days. What does that mean? Which surely does not mean that God was weary and exhausted and needed some sleep. But what it does mean is that God marked off the end of his creative work and he stepped back to be refreshed by delighting in what he had made. What a glorious thing it was for God to find pleasure in what God had done. For the three persons of the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, in mutual love and admiration now to survey the good creation and to, as it were, praise one another and rejoice with one another in what they had done, not individually only, but communally and corporately and in perfect unity. God, the triune God, delighted over what he had made. And when we read in the law that God blessed the day and hallowed it, God is signaling to his creation, and particularly to his image bearers, that he set apart a day in which we too now are invited to stand with God and to rejoice in the work of God's hands. Maybe a little illustration will help. This is not too far-fetched. I've heard of things kind of like this. Imagine working for, for, for a man who owns a, a small business, a man you admire, a man who's doing quite well financially. And every June he takes off two weeks and he takes his family to a Mediterranean vacation and they have a great time. And so every June he tells you, you know, I'm going to be gone for two weeks. We'll shut down the business. You can have the weeks off. And every week then you have the weeks off and he leaves and he departs for a, a beautiful vacation. And you enjoy the weeks off as weeks off, but you, you know in your mind that you don't have money to take your family on a Mediterranean vacation, and so you kind of dream about his vacation while you enjoy your days off. But then one year, he says to you in March, hey, we're going to be going on a vacation in June. It's the 10-year anniversary of the business. We'd like your family to come along with us. We'd like to take you to that place we go on the Mediterranean. We, we would really enjoy your company. We, we'd really enjoy to share time with you. We would really like it if you would see this beautiful place where we go. Well, that's something different, isn't it? Sometimes we think the Sabbath day is just a day off. It's not just a day off. The Lord God who rested, who rejoiced for what he had made blessed the day and sanctified it as a day for us to join him in his rejoicing over what he has done. You see what Christian worship is? Christian worship is to enter into the joy of the Trinity and to delight in the God who delights in himself and to be blessed by the God who enjoys his own blessing of standing to admire what he has done. God is not a tyrannical slave driver looking to squeeze out of us every last ounce of profit. But he himself is the overflowing fountain who bubbles over in love and goodness and who made us out of that overflow and invites us now to join him in his great delight. The Sabbath was blessed to be a blessing to us. Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man. It was God's joy to delight in what he had made. The psalmist says, let the Lord rejoice in his works. 
and it should be our joy too. In that sense, worship is not to be some small portion of the Sabbath day, but worship is the primary task of the Sabbath day. It's to rejoice in God who rejoices. We have a supremely happy God. Let's never forget that. In this sad and sorrowful world, let us never forget that God in creating the world didn't find his work left undone. He wasn't frustrated and couldn't finish the job. He's not in heaven wringing his hands and saying, boy, I wish I could do something. I wish I had a plan. I, I wish I could accomplish. It's not our God. Matthew Henry the Puritan writes, The eternal God, though infinitely happy in the enjoyment of himself, yet took satisfaction in the work of his own hands. He did not rest as one weary, but as one well pleased with the instances of his own goodness and the manifestations of his own glory. What a God we have. He delights in the manifestations of his own wisdom and love and goodness and power. And he says, come and join me. Enter into my joy through worship. Come and sing of my works and who I am and what I've done in creating the world and in my providence of sustaining the world and in my redemption saving the world. Come and, and join with me, God says. God in Sabbath seeks communion with his image bearers. And the Sabbath is the sure evidence that we don't have a God who created the world and then left on some long journey to forget about his creation. But he's the God who engages with this world and calls his image bearers to communion with him. And that's the meaning of life, to know God. So the Sabbath is a gift of our Father's love. But secondly, this morning, the Sabbath is a proclamation of our Savior's accomplishment. A proclamation of our Savior's accomplishment. The rest I've been speaking about, the rejoicing with God, of course, was marred by sin. The Sabbath was woven into the fabric of creation. That's why the fourth commandment isn't to be scratched out of our Bibles. It wasn't just an Israelite thing that's now fulfilled. It was a creation thing, like marriage or work, that endures. But sin affected the Sabbath. Sin affected us. And the Sabbath, though, through history, remaining essentially the same in essence, does develop in different form, according to the different phases of redemptive history. And so the Sabbath took on a peculiarly Israelite or Jewish character, didn't it? As God was training his people to look for the coming of Jesus. Our rebellion ruined our ability to rejoice with God because now instead of being fit for God's fellowship... And to join him, as it were, on the Mediterranean vacation, to come and stand with the Trinity, our sin brought us under God's wrath and condemnation. God could not look upon us. We had no rest. We had no peace. But Christ Jesus came to take up the problem of our unrest, the problem of the chaos of sin, the problem of the wrath of God that abides on us, and he came to bear that away. If we would have read on in Mark chapter 3, then as I mentioned, Jesus on the Sabbath, he, he asked, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? And Jesus, as he does so often in his ministry, he 
on the Sabbath engages a work of restoration. He heals, he fixes, he redeems, he restores. Already for Israel, God was announcing that Sabbath was connected to redemption. When in Deuteronomy 5, the reason given for the Sabbath was that you were slaves and God brought you out. So God was already in the Israelite mind connecting the idea of Sabbath rest with spiritual rest from our sin. The work of recreation. You see, it's here that we can contemplate how it is that we worship on the first day of the week instead of the last day of the week as they did in in Bible times in the Old Testament. As we read in the New Testament, we begin to see the New Testament church gathering on the first day of the week. Acts 20 verse 7 says that the church or the saints met together to break bread on the first day of the week. Acts 20 verse 7 in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, Paul says to lay aside some gift on the first day of the week. It wasn't just a good way to order your life. It was, it was about the gathering of collections. There's some very clear indications that the church began to meet on the first day of the week, and that new pattern was apparently approved by the apostles. There's no objection to it. Now, what can account for a change in day of worship. Well, only something as glorious as what accounts for the original Sabbath, creation. And what is that thing as glorious as creation, even more so, that would change the day? Well, recreation, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The first Christian worship service of the resurrected Jesus took place on the first day of the week, Sunday. Jesus in John 20. Easter evening came among the disciples and preached to them and gave them his spirit. At Pentecost, the spirit was poured out. The spirit of recreation, dawn of a new world. And it's interesting that decades later, the apostle John would write, In the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice. It's a very interesting phrase, the Lord's day. We have something similar, don't we, in the language used, Lord's Supper. This meal commemorates Christ's death. It is the Lord's Supper. But John seems to be referring to the first day of the week, the Lord's day, the day of his resurrection. And so there's a great change in perspective. Whereas the Old Testament saints, they work six days looking for the day of rest to come. And that typified their spiritual journey. They were, they were, they were pressing on towards the rest that would come in Jesus. We now begin our week rejoicing the rest that has come in Christ. We have a liberator. We have a redeemer. And now, enjoying that rest, we go forward into our week to serve in the power of Jesus Christ. And so, this is a festive day of rest, as the Catechism reminds us. And if you ask what's required in this festive day of rest, well, the Catechism says that this especially that the gospel ministry be maintained. Isn't that peculiar? That the gospel ministry be maintained. That, that, that's the, the first thing that Catechism mentions under the fourth commandment. 
Why does the catechism do that? That the gospel ministry and schools for it be maintained. It's because the true rest comes in Christ and our only access to that rest is by the preaching, the proclamation of Jesus Christ. We have no rest if Christ is not preached. Give your soul to a church where where the only thing that's preached is social gospel or be nice or try harder and you have no rest. But we come as sinners who can do nothing for ourselves and we hear the glad announcement, Christ has done it. Be at peace. Your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. Your righteousness is secured before God. Be at rest. It's the gospel that gives us rest. And so the gospel ministry must be maintained. The pulpits must keep going. The seminaries must be faithful to train men to preach the pure gospel. And then the hearers must come and receive the word. That especially on the festive day of rest, I diligently attend the assembly of God's people to learn what God's word teaches, to participate in the sacraments, to pray to the Lord publicly, and to bring Christian offerings for the poor. What a Savior we have. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. You know, we, we, we strap on the weights so often throughout the week, don't we? We, we begin to, to feel the burden. The self-imposed burden, I have to do this or God won't like me. And if I don't do this, God's going to reject me. And I'm, I need to try harder and be better. And we come into church and Christ says, are you weary and burdened? Maybe you, like the Pharisees, made up a bunch of rules that you're not keeping in your mind. And so you think God can't love you anymore. Are you weary and burdened? Come to me. And I'll give you rest. I carried away the true burden. Your offenses against God, your guilt in God's presence. Bow your head to my yoke. My burden is easy. Come walk with me in fellowship. So we want to come, we want to hear that message, and we deprive ourselves of rest if we don't come and hear that message. Our hearts should all the more now in Jesus Christ delight to be together. You know, the writer of Hebrews says, let's not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as, as some are in the habit of doing, but let's, let's encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. And I would say 2,000 years later, as we stand so much closer to the day of Christ approaching, and as we live in wicked times and a depraved culture, we do not need less of God's word but more. We do not need less assembling together to encourage each other. We have not grown up stronger than all the Christians before us that we can get by with the thinnest slice. We are in desperate times. Christ's coming is near. And God and his love have given us a day, a day to be filled with his word and with the announcement of liberty. So let us come and let us hear and let us lift up prayers. Let's partake of the sacraments and let us bring our offerings for the needy and say, the Lord has blessed me so richly. It's my joy to give. And let us do all we can to help others get to church. Running our businesses, 
considering our use of commercial activity and asking not how I can I enslave people to the material world, but how can I help people be liberated and get to the good news, to come and hear the gospel. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, the outpouring of the Spirit on the Lord's Day signal the dawn of a new creation. So this is a gift of the Father's love. This day is the proclamation of Christ's accomplishment. And finally this morning, this is an instrument of the Spirit shaping. An instrument of the Spirit shaping. It's not, it's not surprising, is it, the Holy Spirit would, would use this day so powerfully in the lives of his people. One of the things he does by this day is to rescue us from, from self-reliance. Israel had to learn, you don't gather man on Sunday. Or excuse me, on Sabbath day. You trust in the Lord's double provision the day before. They had to learn not to, not to do their work and take care of their crops on, on, on the Sabbath day. They had to rest in God. The Sabbath breaks us free from the imposing slavery of this world. We get caught up in the rat race, don't we? Produce, work harder, do more. And Sunday we set it all aside and you say, you know what? It's not my work that's going to save me. I live by the blessing of God. It's this break in our week that protects us from enslavement to work. Reminds us we don't live by bread alone, but by the blessing of our God. Reminds us that all of our study for school or all of our labor for our business or all of our work in parenting comes to nothing unless the Lord grants his blessing. I always think of the story, I'm sure I told you before, of the, of the farmer who liked to tell me that when his unbelieving next-door neighbor used to scorn him and mock him for wasting a perfectly good day for farming, he was always delighted to say, what, what takes you seven days to accomplish, my God does for me in six days. That's a testimony of all believers, isn't it? That nothing is lost by setting a day apart, but everything is gained. God is a gracious God. And we may stop producing to rest ourselves in God's provision. But another way the Spirit uses this day is to restore dignity to the rest of our week. Because we go forward from this day now, not as a bunch of slaves, but as the children of the great king. It's by the Lord's Day we regain perspective and say, this is what life is about. I was made for communion with God. And as he sends me into his world to labor, I'm laboring for him. My work has meaning before his face. It's really in that way that, that the Sabbath, the Lord's Day, orders our whole life. I heard a, an older, wiser minister remark in a sermon that, that when people come to him and they say, can I do this on the Sabbath? Can I do that? And, and, and they know they probably shouldn't be doing it. He asks them, well, why would you want to do that on, on this day? And, and they say, well, because I have no other time in the week to do it. To which his response is always, well, then the problem is not with the Sabbath day, but with the way you live the rest of your week. Do you realize that how we spend our Lord's Day has an incredible bearing on how we spend the rest of the week? 
The enslavement to work, the idolatry of work that some partake of, is not incubated or nourished by Sabbath keeping, but nor is the, the new laziness that's set in upon our culture. Nobody wants to work. That, that is not nourished by Sabbath keeping. Setting a day apart a week gives to our lives a rhythm that leads us to work properly the rest of the week for the Lord's cause and under his blessing. Today we regain perspective to go forward tomorrow. But finally, the Spirit is using this day to refocus us upon the goal. The Catechism mentions that, that because of Christ now and his redemption, we can rest every day from our evil ways. Let the Lord work in me through his Spirit. And so begin right now in this life, begin the eternal Sabbath. The writer of Hebrews says in, in chapter 4 that, that there remains a rest for the people of God. A bunch of Israelites did not enter the rest, the land of Canaan. They fell. And Joshua didn't actually give God's people the ultimate rest. But the writer says there remains for us a rest. Let us be diligent to enter it. What is that rest? That rest is Jesus Christ and the consummation of his kingdom. We, by these Lord's days that we set apart, are, are lifted up to look for the great fullness of rest to be found at Jesus Christ's coming, the eternal Sabbath, the uninterrupted fellowship with God, the being finished with all of our sin and having hearts now perfectly made to love and know and serve God. Every Lord's Day is a foretaste. Every Lord's Day is just a, a little bit of the future breaking in to the present to strengthen us and help us along as we make our journey home. And if we realize that, then it shouldn't be to us too surprising that we leave our worship services dissatisfied. Remember in the first year or two of ministry that that one of the men who was tremendously encouraging to me usually, he made the comment, he said, I leave every worship service dissatisfied. And being a young preacher, I was immediately, of course, taken aback. What am I doing wrong? Only later to realize what he was saying, that, that as much as we draw near to God and call upon him, we're, we always know that we don't have the fullness, that something's missing. And those who can't interpret those feelings biblically, then what do they do? They go church hopping. Something's missing, something's missing, something's missing. But those who understand Sabbath, that we don't have yet the fullness of eternal Sabbath, they say this is the disappointing tinge upon my whole life on earth, and it will be till Jesus comes back. And the solution now is not to go church hopping, to find this church where the experience is exuberant and fills me. But the solution is to bow and say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Because this is a world of sin. The Sabbath is for getting ready. The Sabbath is for remembering what Jesus did and for praying for what Jesus will do. The Sabbath is for learning to love the God that we long to spend an eternity with. What a gracious God we have.
to give us such a gift in Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for your holy word, for your glorious truth, and for the great gift of Lord's days that you've piled upon our lives. What a merciful Father you are, that Christ weekly calls us to come away with him and rest. We thank you, O Lord, for the liberty we have in Jesus, for the peace that the chaos of sin has been broken and Christ has come to restore us to your favor. Teach us, God, to rejoice in you, to admire you for your works, to praise you and enter into the joy of your rest. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.